Um, <clears throat> but I was preaching to my church on Sunday morning, and I was dealing with Jezebel. And uh, at the end of it, we prayed for Trump. Cut me down just a little bit, if you will, guys. I'm like a, I don't take off like a helicopter. I take off like a 747. I got to have some runway so I don't get loud real quick. Um, but I was preaching about Jezebel, and there's a prayer group up in North Alabama that's associated with Cindy Jacobs. And um, they dipped into our live streaming and picked up the last 15 minutes of my message on Jezebel where we were praying for the president. Well, somebody got a hold of that. And they sent it out to all their intercessors because it's a prayer network, Alabama Prayer Network. <clears throat> they sent it out to all their intercessors, and lo and behold, a sinner got a hold of it where I was praying for Trump in tongues, and oh, there you go. <laughs> and it went viral, three million hits. It, but it, you may think that's good, but it was bad for me. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard the F word used in so many ways in my life. I had to hire people to come in day and night and keep our website cleared off of all the horrible comments. People were taking pictures of their genitals and sending it to the office. It was vicious because what's going on like that with me is the same thing Trump's been going through in Kavanaugh. So I got in on it a little bit. Amen. And I wasn't even running for the Supreme Court, praise God. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> here's, here's just something I'd like to share with you real quick. I said in that piece, I said that there's a spirit of witchcraft that's trying to take this country over. And it doesn't mean witchcraft like voodoo and putting hexes and all that. It's not that. It's the spirit of witchcraft, which is the spirit of Jezebel. And when Jehu came to Jezebel's son, he said, your mother practiced witchcraft against the people of Israel. And that's exactly what's happening in America. You know, the Bible said, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And the thing about that is there's a lot of people in this country that's left that's still good, godly Christians, God-fearing Christians. And they, um, they want this nation to be a, a nation under God. But there's a lot of people in America now that doesn't. <clears throat> they're globalists. They're elitist. And a lot of them are just pure-eyed atheists. And they don't want that. So this country is really divided. I'm praying for revival because revival is the cure of all ills. But here's one thing I want to share with you real quickly. God has determined that everybody has a place on the face of the earth. A place. Say that with me out loud. Place. place. The Bible even says that God has determined where everybody lives. God has determined that I live in Alabama. Even when I pastored Brownsville, I lived in Alabama. So did Steve Hill. And uh, my my folks were from Alabama, both of them from Troy, Alabama. And um, every person that's alive on the earth has a place, or else God would have not put them on the earth. Everybody has a place. It means topos. The word place means topos. It means surface. Everybody has a surface that God has given them, or else they wouldn't be alive. Along with the place that God has given to people, he's also designated a position that they hold. You can hold the position of a brother or a sister or a mother or a father or an uncle or an aunt, a mother-in-law, father-in-law, a husband, wife, grandmother, grandfather. Everybody has a position 
that they hold. Others hold positions that's more notable, such as city councilman, mayor, governor, uh, congressman, senator, president, whoever. <clears throat> but everybody that's alive on the earth has a place <clears throat> and they have a position. <clears throat> along with their place and along with their position goes an authority. Every person that has a position has been authorized by God and delegated by God to hold an authority. What a lot of people don't really think about and what they don't really realize in regard to this Supreme Court appointment is that there was a place on the Supreme Court vacant. There is a position there with a robe laying across that chair. And whoever got approved by the Senate is going to be endowed with authority to will the gavel and to rule on the Supreme Court. The spirit of Jezebel is the spirit that tries to knock people out of their place, knock them out of their position, and keep them from their authority. Now, whenever Adam was in the garden and the devil came in the form of a serpent, that was before he was cursed. He used to be beautiful. He could walk. He could talk. We know serpents today that they crawl on their belly and they're cursed. But before that, serpent was exceedingly attractive. Serpent was smart. He was articulate. He could talk. He could communicate. When the devil came into the garden, he didn't go to the elephant. When the devil came in the garden, he didn't go to the rhinoceros. He went to the one that held authority. Why? Because Satan wanted that authority. So consequently, Elijah, whenever he was here, he had a place, he held a position, and he had an authority. Samuel was Israel's most beloved prophet, but Elijah was Israel's most powerful prophet. Everybody that you read about in your Bible has a heritage. Everybody has a genealogy. Jesus had one. Elijah's the only one in the Bible that didn't have a genealogy. It just said Elijah the Tishbite. He didn't have um, a genealogy. He's a strange figure. The Lord even caught him up into heaven in a chariot. But he was Israel's most powerful prophet. And here's what you need to understand. When he was here on the earth, he was a strong, powerful prophet. And as long as he was dealing with Ahab, Jezebel's husband, there was not really any problem. Why? Because Ahab was ruled by Jezebel, so he was pretty easy. Any man that's ruled like that by somebody else is not really too difficult to deal with because he's used to being told what to do. Amen. Well, that was a good place for the men to say amen. <laughs> but whenever he killed the 450 false prophets of Baal, it was a major victory in his life. He's a powerful prophet. <clears throat> he killed them barehanded by himself. He had blood all up his nose. He had blood in his ears. He had blood in his hair. He had blood up his fingernails. He killed 450 men by himself. He was a powerful, powerful prophet. 
The next day, he still had dried blood all over him. He's sitting there relishing in the day before when God anointed him so powerfully to take care of these 450 false prophets. Well, a messenger came from Jezebel. Now Elijah's not dealing with Ahab anymore. Now he's dealing with Jezebel. The Bible never mentions that Elijah ever saw Jezebel. It never mentions that he ever saw her, talked to her, or she ever talked to him in person. But she sent him a message the next day, and this runner came and said, Hey, you Elijah? He said, Yes. He said, Jezebel said to give you this message. Tomorrow, about this time, your life will be as the life of one of them that you killed yesterday. You'll be dead in 24 hours. Let me tell you the first mistake Elijah made. He should have looked at his watch. Should have looked at his sundial. (laughs) And he should have said, okay, it's seven minutes after seven. You go back and tell Jezebel that if I'm not dead tomorrow night by seven minutes after seven, I'm coming to kill her. That's the way you deal with threats. It was a different dispensation. They didn't have sheriffs back then, and they didn't have law like we have here in America. He just got through killing 450 men. What's one more woman? Y'all, y'all could help me more if y'all just would. And so he should have said, go back and tell Jezebel that if I'm not dead tomorrow night by 24 hours from now, just like she just sent me a message, if I'm not dead, tell her I'm coming after and I'm going to kill her myself. If he would have done that, he'd have never had a problem. Sometime we do everything but the right thing. Amen? So Elijah, the Bible says, got up and ran for his life. And if you notice in reading that scripture, everywhere it said that he ran, he kept going down. It said down. And it said again down. And that message was so powerful, it has such witchcraft on it from Jezebel that the Bible said when he heard that. I didn't say when he heard that, it said when he saw that. This messenger is reading this message from Jezebel. To Elijah, and it didn't say when he heard that, it said when he saw that. The devil's messages can be so powerful in your life that you don't really hear what he says, but when you hear it, it goes into technicolor and images where you see in technicolor, and you see yourself defeated, whipped, and dead, suffering, setbacks. You see all that because that's the power of witchcraft that goes in your ear and translates into images. So, The Bible said he went down, and he kept going down, and finally the Bible says that he was in such depression that he, uh, can I talk about this a little bit more before I preach? I'm going to anyway, can I do it? (laughs) So the Bible says that he went down and he went to sleep, and an angel was sent by God to, to, to Elijah to wake him up. Now can you imagine And an angel coming and waking a man up. Now, I don't know about you, but no matter how discouraged I've ever been, if an angel came and roused me awake, I'd say, whew, I'm discouraged no more. (laughs) But an angel came and roused him awake. And um, whenever he woke up, the Bible says that the angel told him, he said, I've got something cooked here for you, Elijah. I've got a cruise of water for you. And he said, the journey's too great for you. And it was going to be a 40-day journey down, 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 down. 
And so Elijah ate it and drank it, went back to sleep with an angel in his presence, went back to sleep. That shows you how strong of depression he was under, that you could be in the presence of an angel and go back to sleep. And he went to sleep. When he woke up, the angel said, eat this now and drink this. He started his journey downward, and he went five days, and he never woke up and thought, oh, my God, I'm not even hungry. I'm not even thirsty. Man, what's going on with me? I'm not even hungry. And then the 16th day, I'm not even hungry or thirsty. The 25th day, I'm not hungry or thirsty. The 37th day, I'm not hungry or thirsty. He went in the power of it for 40 days and 40 nights. You can get so discouraged and come under such a witchcraft spirit that you don't even realize what God has done for you and it doesn't even register how good God's been to you because all you got your mind on is what that spirit's telling you. You listening to me? Watch this. So he gets down there and when he gets there, this is always a bad sign when the Lord said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and the Lord said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, well, this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And so the Lord said, I'll tell you what you do. He says, stand over here. I'm going to show you something. So the Bible said he sent a concentrated wind. And he busted rocks. I've been living down on the Gulf Coast a long time, and I've been in a lot of hurricane winds, but I've never seen a wind bust a rock. Just, just busted them all to pieces. After the Lord busted the rocks, he sent an earthquake, shook him up real good. You know, when you're not thinking right, somebody shake you good, it'll come, make you come to your senses. Then after he did all that, then the Bible said he spoke to him in a still, small voice. What does that mean? It means he said, come here, son. Come here. What's wrong with you? What's going on with you, son? You're my man. I love you. I'm your God. Come on, let's get this done. And then he said, now, what are you doing here? And Elijah said this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and this, and did not change it one scintilla. So here's what the Lord said to him. i tell you what you do. You go home and you anoint Elisha to take your place. Anoint Jaziel to be king, Haziel to be king, and anoint Jehu, or anoint Elisha, he said, anoint Elisha in your stead, in your place, and anoint Jehu. So what God was saying to him is, I sent an angel to cook for you. You went in the strength of it 40 days and 40 nights, and you never sobered up and thought, you know, God's with me. I busted rocks for you. I sent an earthquake to shake you around, and I spoke to you real sweetly. There's nothing else I can do, son. I'm going to have to replace you. And five chapters later, God sent a taxi after him. Caught him up in a vortex. Elijah went to heaven. As he was going up, 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 he dropped his mantle over the side of the chariot. And Elisha picked it up. And Elisha did double the miracles that Elijah did. But listen to this. It took Elijah and Jehu, two men, to do what Elijah could have done by himself. Why? Because Jezebel knocked the man of God out of his position. She knocked him right out of his position as the prophet. She knocked him right out of his position 
as someone that was to deal with Jezebel. He dealt with 450 false prophets. That was no problem. He dealt with, Je- he dealt with Ahab. That was no problem. But when Jezebel came on the scene, it paralyzed him. It was witchcraft. That's what I'm trying to tell you tonight before I move on. There's a spirit of witchcraft loose in this country, and it's trying to destroy President Trump, and it's trying to destroy the Supreme Court, and everything else in this country is trying to destroy this country. But by crackies, we're not going to let that happen. Can you shout amen? Y'all say by crackies over here? <laughs> I want to um, I want to go a different route tonight. I'm going to preach a message that I want you to hear. Appreciate all of you being here. I never take it for granted to be able to speak into people's lives. I always, when I was a young preacher, went to meetings, and I always was going expecting to hear something that would help me. And I wanted to be encouraged and strengthened. And so many times I'd go to those big, powerful meetings, you know, and leave out as empty as I went in. And I used to tell the Lord, I said, well, Lord, if you ever give me an opportunity to preach to people, I really want to tell them something that will help them and encourage them. So that's my mission tonight is to strengthen you and to encourage you and help you in your walk with God. I want to preach on something that I think is really important to me. I've been around a long time. I've been able to pastor two revivals pretty successfully. And this is one of the things that I've seen that's a revival killer, and it's also a revival hinderer it hinders revival from coming and if revival does come the devil uses this to snuff it out pretty quick i'm going to do something right up front it's going to take me about 10 minutes maybe 15 minutes to do this but i'm going to uh go through some numbers with you right quick i was raised by a bible prophecy preacher and uh, he was a very powerful man he was a german his name was wetzel he was my pastor my mentor and um He was one of the most brilliant men I've ever known. He had a photographic memory, but he was humble as an old shoe. I saw people do him all kinds of ways, but he was the sweetest, merciful, most tender man I've ever met. He was my spiritual father, and he was my pastor. But he was a Bible prophecy preacher, so he engendered in me at an early age a love for Bible numbers. Not numerology, but Bible numbers. I'm going to give you some Bible numbers right quick, and then I'm going to explain to you after I give you these numbers why I did this before I preach my message. In the Bible, the number one stands for unity and independent existence. One stands for God's absoluteness, his omnipotence, his headship, and his sovereignty. The Bible says, Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Zechariah said, The Lord shall be king over all the earth, and that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. Ephesians says, One body, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one God. The Father of all who is above all, two in the Bible, is the number for addition and increase. It stands for help and fellowship. Two in the Bible, it says, how can one be warm alone? It says, two lies together, they have heat. And it says that um, two are better than one. They have a good reward for their labor. Woe to him that is alone when he falls. Two stands for testimony in the Bible. It stands for confirmation and help. In a business meeting, someone will say, I second that motion. There's two testaments in your Bible, old and new. Jesus is the number two in the Godhead, the adorable Godhead. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the second man, 
the second Adam that unites two natures, divine and human. And he witnesses to us of God's faithfulness. At the, angel, at the tomb, there were two angels to testify at his resurrection. There were two angels on the Mount of Ascension said he's coming back as he went. In the um, tribulation period, there'll be two witnesses that'll come back. And they will be killed in the streets of Jerusalem and resurrected on the third day. Number three in the Bible is the number of divinity. Three is the number of trinity, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three in the Bible means so much, heaven, earth, and sea, father, mother, child, morning, noon, night, right, middle, left, knowledge, action, experience, spirit, soul, body, length, breath, height, angels sing holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. David prayed in the morning, noon, and evening. Daniel knelt three times a day. And gave thanks. Satan tempted Jesus three times in the wilderness. Three times Peter denied the Lord. Jesus prayed three times in Gethsemane. On the third day, Jesus arose from the dead. There's three witnesses, the spirit, blood, and water. Three is the simplest compound figure in geometry. Four in the Bible is the number of the world. It's the number of God's creation. Oriental philosophers to this day say that it is a symbol of the world. Four seasons, four different directions. Four phases of the moon, four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. When God speaks of his providence to creation, he sends four cherubims with four faces, four wings, four sides, four wheels. The parable of the sower, sowed in four kinds of soil. There's four hearers in the earth. There's four winds. There's four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. Daniel saw the four kingdoms of the earth. Gentile rule, he saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Four times ten is forty. Forty in the Bible means testing. In the days of Noah, it rained for forty days and forty nights. I could take that into eighty and one hundred twenty, but I don't have time. Five is the number in the Bible. It stands for grace. It also stands for tithe. Five is grace. Ten stands for tithe. Five senses, five fingers on one hand, five toes on one foot. Ten commandments, ten toes on Daniel's image. Ten stands for Worldly human completion, ten virgins, noblemen called ten servants, gave them ten pounds, said, Occupy till I come. There's ten righteous would have saved Sodom and Gomorrah. Daniel and the Hebrew children were found to be ten times wiser and better than the rest. There were ten plagues in Egypt. Number six in the Bible is the number of man. I'm not giving you all these, I'm just touching on them. Man created on the sixth day to labor six days. Slaves were to serve six years. Jesus' darkness began at the cross, on the cross at the sixth hour. He was crucified the sixth day of the week. Goliath was six cubits in a span. Daniel's temple was 60 cubits high, six cubits broad. Mark of the Antichrist is 666. It is evil at its fullest decimal. It is the deification of man in a world system without God. Number seven in the Bible is the earth crowned with God's uh, triunity. It's four and three together. That's what seven is. It is the creature manifesting the creator. Seven is hallowed in the Bible. Seven speaks of fullness, completion, accomplishment, and rest. Seven in Scripture is used more than all other numbers. It's used over 600 times. I'll just give you a few. There were seven churches of Asia, seven spirits of God. Lamb had seven horns. Seventh day of the week is the Sabbath. Animal had to be seven days old before it could be sacrificed. Feast of Unleavened Bread was seven days, circumcision of a child after seven days, seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles. Golden Lampstand had seven branches and seven lights. Naaman had to dip seven times. Noah entered the ark after seven days of grace. Ark rested on the seventh month on Ararat. 
Jacob worked seven years for Rachel and seven years for Leah. Jacob bowed seven times before Esau. Pharaoh's dream was seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. The priests marched seven days, blowing seven trumpets. The seventh day they marched seven times. Samson had seven locks of hair. Jesus, or Jesse rather, had seven sons. Solomon took seven years to build the temple. Daniel's furnace was seven times hotter. Jesus had seven words from his cross. I could go on and on. Number eight. Eight in the Bible is the number of new beginnings, a new order. Eight is the first day of the new week. Eight is the number of covenant. Eight is the day that a child could be circumcised. Noah was the eighth person. Eight souls were saved by water. Jesus was transfigured on the eighth day. Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week to establish a new covenant for a new creation. Now, I'm going to jump over to 12. 12 in the Bible is the number of government. It is a symbol of... It is a symbolic number of Israel as well as the church. It represents the manifestation of God's elective purposes. It is the earth. It is God's elective purposes being manifest in the earth through his chosen people. There were 12 hours of the day, 12 hours of the night, 12 months in a year, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles of the Lamb, 12 stars in the crown of the radiant woman, 12 gates to a new Jerusalem, 12 foundations, 12 fruit trees, by the tree of life, 12 basketfuls left over from the miracle provision, 12 thrones judging 12 tribes. Jesus said, I could pray my father and he would give me 12 legions of angels, 12 jewels on the breastplate of the high priest, 12 spies sent out, 12 rods laid out before the Lord, only Aaron's rod budded, 12 times 2 is 24. There's 24 elders in the book of Revelation, 12 times 12, 12,000 times 12,000 is 144,000. Twelve is the number of God's elect and God's people. Now, I gave you all that for this reason. I want to prove to you, just by reading this, this little bit to you, that in the Bible, when a number is used, it's always on purpose. It's never arbitrary. Anytime a number is ever used in the Bible, it's on purpose. Everything in this Bible is deliberate. It's not by chance. So I'm going to share with you a scripture, and I want you to see if you can pick out what I'm going to read. And I'll preach to you for about 30 minutes. <clears throat> when Jesus was passed over again by ship under the other side, many people gathered him. He was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there comes one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet, and he besought him greatly. My little daughter is lying at the point of death. I pray, would you come lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she shall live? Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood 12 years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, she had spent all that she had, was nothing better, but rather grew worse. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind him and touched his garment. She said, If I could just touch the hem of his clothes, I know I'll be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of the plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing... That virtue had gone out of him. He turned in the press and he said, who touched my clothes? And the disciples said, well, Lord, you see the multitude thronging you. And you say, who touched me? He looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done to her, came and fell down and confessed all the truth to him. He said unto her, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace now and be whole of your plague. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the master anymore. 
<clears throat> as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Now, don't be afraid, he said. Only believe. He suffered no man to follow him, save Peter, James, John, the brother of James. He comes to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. He sees a turmoil out in the yard, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he said unto them, Is that the rapture? Is that, is, that the, is that the trumpet sound? If it ain't the rapture, cut that phone off. And when he comes to the house, to the ruler of the synagogue, he sees the turmoil and them that wept and wailed. They were out there in the yard just flailing themselves. <laughs> and when Jesus was come in, he said unto them, Why do you make all this ado, and why are you weeping? The damsel's not dead, but sleepeth. And the Bible said they laughed at Jesus, laughed him to scorn. I've seen that spirit in church before. It puts on like it's real religious and really compassionate, cares about everybody. But if you ever cross it, it'll laugh at you and mock you. And when he had put them all out, oh, I like that, don't you? I like that about Jesus. He took the father, the mother, the damsel, and them that were with him and entered in where the damsel was lying. He took the damsel by the hand, and he said unto her, Talith the Kumai, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was the age of twelve. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. He charged them straightly that no man should know it. He commanded them that something should be given her to eat. Now, stay with me for just a little while. I had been really busy. I had a pastor's conference beginning that night, and I'd been on the road, been preaching on the road a lot. And I was so tired, I couldn't hardly see straight. I was that tired. My knees were quivering. I was spitless. I was so tired. I got in from a trip, and I was, I was hosting a conference, and Daphne, when we was at the Civic Center there, before we built our new church, and uh, I had to go and meet with the pastor that day for lunch, and I was so tired I didn't want to go meet with him. And I went, and I met with him, and after I met with him, I came home, and I flopped down upstairs in my office on my sofa, and I just said, Lord, if you have ever helped me, would you help me today? I said, God, I got this conference tonight. I've had preachers fly in from all over the world. And I said, I've got to have something. Please help me. Reached over and opened up my Bible, and it fell open to that passage there that I just read to you in Mark chapter 5. Well, as soon as I saw Mark chapter 5, I thought, oh, God, can't you do any better than that? <laughs> I preached the woman with the issue of blood every way you can preach it. There ain't nothing left there, Lord. I've stripped that vine bare. And I heard the Holy Spirit say, just read it again. And so I read it, and I saw that this woman had this issue of blood 12 years. Well, being raised by a prophecy preacher and knowing a lot about Bible numbers, I said to myself, hmm, how many of you has ever said something like, hmm? Do it like this, say, hmm. Yeah, you did good. So... When I read that about her having that issue of blood 12 years, then I saw where Jesus followed 
the leader of the synagogue, and when he got to her house, his daughter was laying there, and they said, she's dead, don't want to bother to come. Well, when he got there, the Bible said that she was 12 years old, and I thought, okay, now we're getting somewhere. So instantly, in my mind, everything came together. And I started writing notes as fast as I could write them, and that's what I'm preaching to you. So here's what I came up with. Now, I want to say, first of all, before I get started preaching, that I realize that this woman had an issue of blood. I realize she had a physical malady. It was an issue of blood. I realize that. Nobody needs to correct me on that because I know that. But I'm going to take this woman with the issue of blood, and I'm going to use her as an example that she had issues. Now, 12 in the Bible, as I told you, stands for God's elect. It stands for the saints of God, both Old Testament and New Testament. So this woman in the book of Mark stands for, I'm going to say she's going to stand for the established church, New Testament church the traditional New Testament church that we've always known. That's who she is. Number 12 is all over her. She's got an issue. She's come to the end of herself. And I'm going to say that she is going to represent a picture of the established church in America and the world. But this young girl, the daughter, is a type and a picture of the emerging church of this hour. This child had a length of life, the exact same length of life that this woman was sick. Now, this woman is going to be a picture of the church also because in this little girl's life, she needed a mother. She needed a spiritual mother. She needed somebody to guide her. This little girl, 12 years old, Needed somebody to give her direction and help her. She needed a mother in Zion. This mother couldn't really help anybody because she's got issues. And she has spent everything. She's weak. She could hardly function anymore and was constantly growing worse. Twelve is all over the woman and twelve is all over the girl. It stands for Old Testament, New Testament church. It stands for the people of God. Now, I looked up the word issue in Webster, and I just want to tell you real quick what it says. Issue means to flow out, and that's exactly what this woman had. She had a menstrual cycle problem, and the blood was flowing out from her private areas. And it was a matter, or number, number two, the, the second thing that an issue is, is a matter that's in dispute between at least two parties. The third thing that an issue is, is a point of debate. The fourth thing about an issue is it's things that have piled up and accrued. Number five, it's things that must have a final outcome in order to move ahead. Now, this established church is like this older woman. There's several things I want to say about this older woman, and I just want to take them one by one, and I want to talk to you, and I want you to listen to me carefully. One of the first things that I want to say about this woman is that she had an issue, and it was an issue of blood, 
And whenever you have an issue of blood like she did, one of the first things that is lost is intimacy. She had it for 12 years. She was not able to be intimate for 12 years with her husband if she had a husband. One of the things I've noticed about issues in people's lives is when an issue comes into a person's life and something happens to you and it stings you and it impacts you and knocks the breath out of you, shocks you, hurts you, you embrace that issue and you're wounded. And one of the first things to happen whenever that happens is you're so consumed with it. I've seen people in my churches down through the years that loved God with all their heart. Many of the women that I've known through the years have been tremendous intercessors. And God could speak to them and they'd be sound asleep 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. And the Lord could wake them up and say, I want you to come in here and I want to speak to you. Come in here. And they would get their Bible and a Kleenex box and they'd get a shawl and they'd go into the living room not bother their husband and the Lord would begin to speak to them and show them things and show them things to pray about and give them scripture and reveal himself to them and it was precious time of intimacy I've known men before that I pastored that loved God they fasted they prayed they were powerful preachers of the gospel they had an intimate prayer life they shook hell when they prayed But I've also been there as the pastor and seen whenever something came up that hit them in the pit of the belly and knocked the breath out of them. And unless you are prepped and prepared to handle those kinds of shocks of life, it can knock the breath out of you to the point that you embrace that pain and you protect that pain. And all you can think about is what she said and what he did. All you can think about is how they abused me and what they got out on me. The rumors. How can this happen? And so one of the things about this woman was she wasn't able to have intimacy for 12 years. When you have an issue, that's one of the first things to go is the intimacy. How many people have been hurt? And that one that the Lord would come in and say, I want you to come in here and I want to speak to you and I want to show you something. And they have such a hurt now. And they have such a pain, they flip over in the bed, pull the cover up. They don't get up and go in there and meet the Lord. They are nursing a wound. And they have lost their intimacy. One of the things I noticed about Brownsville, it was so powerful. One of the things that so shocked me when revival first broke out is the intimacy that people were having in the altars with the Lord. Revival is not church as usual. Me and Steve would say goodbye to one another well after the sun had come up each morning. We'd be in church all night long. It wouldn't be preaching all night. There'd be a sermon, and then the Holy Spirit would move. Worship would be awesome. And then about 10 o'clock at night, Steve and I would begin to pray for people. People came in. There were four and a half million people came through the doors of Brownsville in five years from all over the world. And with those people flying in from all over the world to your church where you pastor, you can't walk off and leave those people. They've spent money to get there. And they're hungry and they're seeking God. And we'd stay all night long praying with men and women and young people, people that didn't understand our language. We'd pray for them. And usually I can't explain it, but usually God would never really move in full power till after midnight. 
You could look up at 3 o'clock in the morning and there'd be as many people there at 3 in the morning as there was when we started at 7 at night. People would leave the church and have to go to work at 10 or 11 o'clock or have to go home, our local people, and then have to go home and get a little bit of rest for, church, for work the next day. But there'd be people standing outside waiting to take their place whenever they left. And you look up at 3 in the morning, there'd still be thousands of people in the sanctuary at 3 o'clock in the morning. And we had to pray for those people. And for some reason, God wouldn't really move in full power till after midnight. You might say, why? I think it so excited the Holy Spirit to see people in the house of God at 3 in the morning that he said, I think I'm going to come in here and do something. I don't know about you, but I say, God, show up and do your thing and touch your people. Come on, give him praise. Come on, give him praise. You can do better than that. I remember one night in revival when God would show up to heal, it would feel like heat would come in the building. It'd feel like hot heat would come in the building. Now, I'm not a pushover, friend. I'm not a religious fanatic. You don't know me. For God to send revival to the church where I pastored was a miracle, and my people knew it because they knew I didn't put up with stuff. (laughs) I didn't put up with nothing. I didn't. I was conservative. I loved God, and I loved his Holy Spirit. But if somebody got out of order, I had trained ushers. They would set you down in a New York minute. But when God came in on Father's Day of 95, it was such a power. I had never seen anything like it. I didn't just see people experience it and people go through that. It touched me first. I went down, bam, on the floor, and I was down four hours on my back on hard marble floor. I couldn't even lift my head that far off the floor. The glory of the Lord came in that place. And I'm talking about the kabod of God. It means the weighty presence of the Lord. And whenever I went down, I was down for four hours. I could hear everything crystal clear, but I couldn't open my eyes and I couldn't lift my head. And I just got through preaching on the glory of God. I preached 10 parts on it. And whenever I hit the floor, I said, I couldn't even move my tongue in my head. I said, "Mm -hmm." and I was saying, Lord, what is this? And God's got a sense of humor. He said, well, son, this is what you just got there preaching on. And I learned one thing, and here's what I learned. Listen to me carefully. You can preach something with great anointing, and you can preach something with great knowledge. And you can preach something until you exhaust the subject you think. But until you experience what you preach, you don't even know what you're preaching. You've got to experience, taste, and see that the Lord, He is good. Amen. It's one thing to see somebody under the power of God and to sit there in your seat and look down your long nose and judge them and think, ah, that's a bunch of fake. That's a bunch of fake. That's the way I used to be. But when God touches you, it ain't fake no more. This is the real deal, baby. This is the real deal. And when my congregation saw me on the floor for four hours, people started coming to revival early in the first early days and weeks of revival. Not so much that God was moving, but they, the rumor got out, John Kilpatrick's on the floor and can't get up. 
That's why people came. They came to see me in the floor. And you know what? I didn't care because I, God was touching me. You don't care whenever God's touched. You don't care what people think. You don't care what you look like. You don't care what people are saying about you. Just God touch me. Touch this church. Come on, give him praise. Stand up and give him praise. Come on. Okay, I feel something coming. I felt Yes, Lord. Anybody got a clean handkerchief? I did say clean handkerchief. Thank you. Huh? Yeah. Well, I'm going to check it myself. No, I'm sorry. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you may be seated. Woo! Get behind me, devil. Glory to God. Well, anyway, one night. We just had revival, just hadn't been going on long. Probably in the first three months of revival, that sounds strange, doesn't it? It went five years. We were in the sanctuary, and uh, church hadn't been started long, but whenever the Lord would come in to heal, you could usually feel heat come in. And me and Steve would never talk about that openly and publicly because we knew if we started talking about the heat, people get their mind more on the heat than they would the healer. So we would always look at one another, and I'd say, heat's in here. He'd say, yeah, I know it. <laughs> and so uh, Linda would be doing worship. But anyway, this woman, this one particular night, it was a Tuesday night. Church was jam-packed. And uh, they came forward, a lot of people came forward to worship, you know, with Linda. And <clears throat> as they were worshiping, this woman just started screaming, just ah! shaking her hands like that and just staring at her husband. And I thought, okay, you know, we may be in revival, but if you're going to scream in my church, you need a good reason to scream. So I reached over and got a handheld microphone like this, and I went off the stage, and I walked up to her. She never saw me coming, didn't care I was coming. And she just, ha, ha, And so when I got to where she was, I looked at her, and I looked to see what she was looking at, and her husband was a Vietnam veteran. And when he was in Vietnam, they threw a grenade in on him. And it came in the tent where they were, and so he picked it up, and just as he was throwing it out of the tent, it exploded. And it blew part of his hand off. It blew a big moon out of his hand. He had tendons exposed. He had grafts and all kinds of stuff. His hand was growing back. 
Going back. <laughs> I looked. We screamed to do it. <laughs> you know, whenever I saw that, I could not believe it. And I got there right at, toward the last part of it. And it was like something, it was like this. It was like an invisible laser or something was just causing meat to grow back. And when it was all over, the meat that came on the top of his hand perfectly matched his suntan. And the meat that came on the bottom of his hand perfectly matched the other pink meat. God don't do no shabby work. Come on, give him praise. I said give him praise. That man, that man came back to Brownsville about 50 times sharing that testimony. I'll never forget that, seeing meat grow back on his hand just like that. And whenever I saw it, I, I said to myself, my mind, my mind could not accept what my eyes were seeing. And I said to myself, I've never seen a miracle like that before. But my mind was saying, that's the most natural thing I've ever seen. It was the most supernatural thing I've ever seen. But my mind was saying, wonder why we're not seeing this more. You know what I believe? In these last days when the glory comes... We're going to see creative miracles like that. That's what I believe. Let me get back on the subject. So she wasn't able to enjoy intimacy. Whenever you are shocked or stunned or hurt or offended, one of the first things to go in your life is your prayer life and your intimacy with the Lord. You want to be left alone. You don't want to talk to the Lord. You are hurt. The second thing about this woman is she couldn't become pregnant and reproduce. When a woman has an issue of blood like she did, the sperm of the, hum of the male cannot reach the egg of the female. The conditions are not right for reproduction and pregnancy. How many times have I been to churches? Through the years of my ministry, and when I first went there, they were romping and stomping. House full. The singing and the worship was unbelievable. The preacher loved by the congregation. Powerful preacher of the gospel. And then they invited me back a year or two later, and you go back in, and just a corporal's guard of what was there originally. The singing pathetic and the preacher looks beat down if he's still there. Most of the time he's gone and they've already voted in somebody else. What happened? The devil brought an issue into the church that tore the church all to pieces. What was thriving, what was growing, what was mushrooming into a powerful New Testament church in that region. Now an issue had surfaced, and the first news you know, church was down to just a shell of what it used to be. An issue. It was an issue that the devil brought in. The devil knows exactly who you are. And the devil knows exactly what eats at you. And the devil knows exactly who to have say what and who to do 
what he wants them to do because he knows how you think. He knows how deeply you feel. He knows how deeply you love. And he knows how much you want to be loved. I have seen churches that had buses and they'd pick up children every Sunday and they'd pick up hundreds. And the Sunday night service would be the evangelistic service. That would be where people would come and the altar calls would be given. People would be saved, baptized in the Holy Spirit. People that had demonic powers, they'd be delivered from demonic powers. Church was healthy and reproducing. Souls being saved. Church mushrooming and growing. When the issue came in and come in and the devil brought it in, witnessing was out the window. Because now they're consumed with what's happened to me. Not that my neighbor may go to hell. It's a self thing. It's introspection of what I'm going through, not what my neighbor needs. And churches that once were great, churches, soul winning churches, now there's not much talk at all, if any of leading people to Christ, opening up the altars, having altar workers lead people to Jesus is something you've got to be prepared for because the devil knows exactly how to hit you. And so I've come here tonight to tell you this. Put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God because the devil will come at you and he'll hit you and he'll try to hit you with things that will cause you to get hurt and wounded and offended. And after a while, your world shrinks down into just you and maybe another person or two. But even your marriage can suffer because you're not even able to supply in your marriage what you need to supply to have a healthy relationship. Number three. The third thing about this woman was the Bible said that she was broke, bankrupt, had nothing left. To give. She was weak and getting worse. She was desperate. She was broke. I'm amazed at people that I have known in my ministry and down through the years that was so powerful in God. They could lay hands on people in Walmart and God would heal them in aisle seven. I've seen that happen. I've seen people that could lead people, waitresses, to the Lord in restaurants. But whenever they get hit with a major issue in their life, after that thing does its work in them, they're broke, have nothing left to give. They can't even minister to anybody else. And they can't even minister to themselves. Because it takes everything they've got just to make it another day. Now, let me close. Now, after Jesus restored this traditional church of the hour, the Bible says that the woman came to him, and Jesus said, who touched me? In other words, I felt virtue drain out of me, the anointing drained out of him. Somebody had such a need when they touched Jesus, it drained the anointing out of him. And it was such a great need. It drained him. It drained his batteries down, so to speak. He said, who touched me? And the disciples said, well, Lord, 
He said, no, somebody told you. This woman came, the Bible said, and she confessed all to him. She confessed all. You see, you can't get help until you confess you need help. And she confessed everything. I've always thought that was a strange thing for her to say when Jesus healed her. She told him everything. And the Bible says that Jesus just looked at her and he said, Okay, darling, go your way now. It's okay. He said, Just go your way. Everything's all right. So as soon as he healed her now and got the traditional church of this hour healed up, just as he was about to go to Jairus' house and he was going to continue his journey, a runner came from Jairus' house. And the runner said, Jairus, don't trouble the master anymore. Your daughter's dead. It's over. How many of you understand when Jesus is on the scene, nothing is over? I said when Jesus is on the scene, nothing is over. You don't know who you're talking to here. You don't know who you're dealing with here. We're talking about the Son of God. When the Son of God is on the ground, there's nothing over. Nothing is impossible to him that believes. Well, the Bible says, Bible says that Jesus said to Jairus, he said, he said, don't pay no attention to that. Let's go. Let's go. He said, let's go. Come on, Jairus. Let's go. Don't, Don't get sidetracked with this. Let's go. So Jairus just kept leading the way and Jesus is following him. And when they get down to Jairus' house, you got all these professional weepers out in the yard. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) I've seen that stuff so much in church, friend, I'm turned off to it. I just can't help but tell you. And Jesus walked in the yard. They had yards back in the Middle East then. You know what I'm saying? Jesus walked in the yard and he said, what's going on here? They said, oh, she's dead. He said, no. He said, the daughter's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they stopped that crying and that fake crying. And they started laughing him to scorn. And Jesus said, y'all just leave the yard right now. Y'all, I'm not going to let you come in the house. Y'all get out of here. Just leave. I've got to have faith to do what I do. Are you listening to me? I've got to have faith to do what I do. So the Bible says that Jesus said to Jairus, he said, let's go on in. Where's she at? Now, the Bible said that he took Jairus, Jairus' wife, Peter, James, John, Jesus, and the girl made seven completion. And here's what I want to say. When he got in there, that little girl was 12. A type and a symbol, a shadow of the emerging church of this hour. Now, let me tell you something about the emerging church of this hour. They're hard to figure out. The millennials are. They got pink hair. They got tattoos. They don't look like we used to look in our time. If y'all ever hear that John Kilpatrick's got a tattoo, y'all know I got the beginning of Alzheimer's. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but these kids has got tattoos, they got pink hair, they got rings through their nose, they got rings through their ears. And one of the things I noticed about the Brownsville Revival is whenever God would begin to move, our students, 
that was part of our church, they would tell the students at school what God was doing at their church, and they'd bring the students. Well, when the students came from the school to the church, many of those students had never been in church a day in their life. They didn't know what church was all about. So whenever they came in the church and they saw people being touched by the Lord from all over the world, you know, people shaking under the power and all that, they'd come in and just say, you know, the students would start, I like this, this is good, neat, you know. And I thought to myself, oh, God. And the Lord, I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, I apologize. I know those kids are not in the spirit. And the Lord said to me, don't you think I know that too? (laughs) But they would come in and they'd have on uh, tight, hot pants in church because they'd never been to church. Hadn't been raised to be in church. Many of them didn't even have any parents. You know, cared about them. They'd come in wearing hot tie pants. They'd come in barefooted. They'd have on halter tops, pink hair, rings, tattoos. And they'd stand down there. And the first two or three nights, they would just, you know, look around. They was having fun. And I felt grieved for the Holy Spirit. And here's what the Lord said to me. He said, son, you take your hands off this. He said, don't try to get people cleaned up before I clean them up. How many of you knows God catches his fish first and then he cleans them? I was trying to clean the fish up before he caught them. And so I'd see these girls down there, you know, and they'd jump up and down and their tops would, you know, what I'm saying? And they had on these hot pants and all that. And and it just was... It's something that in normal circumstances as a pastor I would have never permitted. But here's what I, here's what uh, a lady came in one time from the Dallas Morning News and she said, who's the pastor here? I said, I am. Me and Steve was in the back room and she said, pastor, I'm from the Dallas Morning News. She said, did you know there's sinners out there in that line? (laughs) And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, no, I'm trying to tell you something. There's sinners out there in that line. She said, I smelled alcohol when I was out there. I said, praise God. She said, what? She said, I smelled marijuana when I... I said, praise the Lord. She said, what do you mean? I said, lady, when was the last time you saw people gathering at 5 and 6 o'clock in the morning and staying in line all day long in the hot sunshine to be in a church service that night at 7? They'll sit in line outside of Best Buy to buy a television set, but you can't get them to line up in the house of God. I said, something's going on in here. God's drawing all men. He said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. That's what he's doing. Come on, give him praise. So, <laughs> she said, Reverend, there's a man out there. He's in his skivvies. I said, yeah. She said, yes. And he's one solid tattoo. I said, really? She said, yes. His skivvies is skin tight. And he's skinny as a rail. And I went out there to him and he had tattoos. There wasn't a bare piece of skin anywhere. And she said, even his eyelids was tattooed. 
And when he shut his eyes, it said, okay. <laughs> I'm okay, you're okay. Amen. Praise God. Amen. So she said, she said, I, uh, I looked at him and I thought, my God, he looks like a snake. So we nicknamed him snake. His toes, his legs, his ankles, up to his skivvies, up past his skivvies, everything was tattooed solid. He was a piece of ink is what he was. So that night, she told him, she said, she said, I asked him, Reverend, she said, I asked him, sir, where are you from? He said, I'm from Wisconsin. She said, where do you go to church? He said, lady, I've never been to church a day in my life. She said, well, what faith do you belong to? He said, what's that? She said, uh, well, how did you wind up down here in Pensacola? He said, lady, I was riding my Harley in Milwaukee. And while I was riding my Harley, I heard a voice. You see, drug addicts don't think nothing about hearing voices. <laughs> Alcoholics don't think nothing about hearing voices. It's Christians that, oh my God, you know, Christian, Christians can't stand to hear voices. It scares them. But a drug addict said, yeah. <laughs> and he said, the Lord called me by my name and said, I'll meet you at that revival in Pensacola. And so she said, well, how did you get down here? He said, my Harley. And she said, well, when you got into town, how did you know where the church was? He said, lady, I pulled offside the road on Highway 29, and I said, where's the revival? And everybody knew where the revival was. Go up here, three lights, take a right, and then go down to the end, stop sign, take a right, and there's, there's, there's a Brownsville revival up there, Brownsville Assembly of God. And so he said, I got here just a little while ago. And he said, I'm waiting. She said, well, what do you think is going to happen when you get in this church? He said, lady, I expect to meet the person behind the voice. Come on, church, help me. I said, help me out. That night when Steve Hill gave the altar call, I looked out of the corner of my eye and when he gave the altar call, it looked like a third baseman diving for third base. He dove in that altar just like a, just like a guy diving for a home base, third base. He dove in that altar and he was squalling his eyes out and he met the person behind the voice. Oh, Hallelujah. So what I'm trying to say to you is when Jesus walked in that room, there's that girl. The whole time that girl was alive, 12 years, she needed somebody to guide her. But that church, the traditional church, couldn't guide her because it had its issues. How many churches today have failed in their mission of being there for other people that desperately need them because we've got too many needs our own self? We can't be there to guide. We can't be there to pray. We can't be there to counsel. We can't be there to share wisdom because we're so full of issues. Somebody hurt our feelings.
Hallelujah. I'll tell you one more story and I'm closing. Shucks, it's just 8 o'clock. In Phoenix, it's just 6. I remember right when revival first broke out. There were so many people in the church that our people lost their seats, our church people. And they lost their parking places. (laughs) How many of you knows you... (laughs) How many of you knows you can fool you can fool with a man's wife or fool with a woman's husband, but don't fool with their seat in church or their parking place. And so they lost their parking places, and they lost their seat. And so, you know, I mean, strange stuff was going on in Brownsville. People were coming. I'm talking about the scum of the earth was coming. Billionaires were coming. Everybody was coming. All kind of people: the rich, the poor, the educated, the ignorant. The garbage collector, the lawyer, sat side by side in the church. I loved it. It was nothing like it in the world. And um, I remember one night, it was uh, a Monday or Tuesday, and I was thinking to myself, I just wonder what my people thinks about what's going on in their church. Reckon what they think about this. Because you could smell armpits. (laughs) You could smell alcohol. You could smell people. You, you could tell. I mean, you could tell. It was like a hog pen. There was all kind of people in there. It was, just, it was just people everywhere. So I remember I was standing there on the platform. Church was going on. I was just thinking, I wonder what my people thinks about this. Because they knew me one way before revival. And I, I, they, I wonder what they think about me. Allowing all this stuff in their church. So I had a bunch of WMs in the church. You know what WMs are? That's the grannies that has the buns in the back of the head. You know what I'm talking about? The, the gray hair and the white hair got the buns in the back. You know what I'm saying? The ones that can pray the stars down. <clears throat> and so I looked out there. I stand on the platform and I looked out there and I looked and saw some of my grannies out there, some of them buns, you know, and I thought, I wonder what they think about all this going on in their church. Well, about that time I looked. And here come a woman in the back of the church, and she looked like she was a woman of the night. She was a prostitute. She was a knockout. She was beautiful. Tall, had on spiked heels. She had on hot pants, jewelry. Uh, She had her midriff exposed. She had on a halter top. There was nothing left of the imagination. And when she come walking in, I said, oh, God. Jesus, help me. And I looked, and you've got some ushers that are pretty smart and pretty savvy. This usher was dumb as nails. (laughs) I saw him make a beeline for her. And uh, he said, do you need a seat, ma'am? She said, yes, please. And I saw him look around the audience. And right down here on the second row was an empty place. And he said, right this way, please. And I thought, God, blind that man. Don't let him see that room. Don't let him see that place right up front. Well, he's walking down the aisle and she's following him like this. And she's got on hot pants. And when she's walking down the aisle, I'm watching the congregation and the men are looking like. 
and the women is elbowing them like. <laughs> so he sits her right down the second row, and I thought, God, just help me get my mind off all this stuff. I just, <clears throat> I need, I need to enjoy revival. Not, I can't be worried about what people are thinking. So I remember the service went on, and it was a powerful service. Holy Spirit came. When you are in revival, it's not about the sermon. It's not about the person. It's not about the singing. It's not about the worship leader. It's all about the presence. If the presence is there, you got it made. If the presence ain't there, nothing's going to work. When are we ever going to learn that? So... I remember that night, Steve gave the altar call, buddy, when he gave that altar call, and he said, I'm opening the altars. If you need the Lord, come. Come now! She dove in her high heels, her hot pants, and her uh, halter top. When she dove in the altar, oh my God, there was nothing left to the imagination. And I saw everybody's head do like this. (laughs) <laughs> they turned away from her. They couldn't look because when she dove in that altar, it just exposed everything. I looked back there and I saw my WM. I, got, I saw that look on their face like they'd been eating sour pickles. <laughs> and I saw them making a beeline right toward me. I was sitting over here on the side of the building. There was seven of them. And they came walking right at me, and I thought, I'm dead meat, Jesus, help me. Well, what I didn't know was the prayer clause was right behind my chair. And so I saw Sister Youngstrom pick up those prayer clauses, and she handed all of them that was in that little army, she handed all of them a prayer cloth. And they came over and they stood around her, two on this side, two on this side, and three out that way. And they stretched some prayer claws out like this and built her a little tabernacle. That, that prostitute was praying through to an old-fashioned salvation. And them women in that church was holding them prayer claws, and they built her a little tabernacle. And I looked, and we had television lights on the top of the building there, and I looked on the faces, the wrinkled faces of those grannies. And there was tears dripping off their faces. And those TV lights was glistening in those tears on her face. And here's what I said. I said, Lord, you finally found you a place, haven't you, where you can do what you want. When you want, and however you want, and nobody's going to confront you about it. So, here's what I want to share with you tonight in closing. This is my third closing, by the way. But here's what I want to share with you tonight as I close. Number one, if you're going to have revival, you're going to have to get over yourself. If you're going to have revival, you're going to have to get rid of that religiosity. You're going to have to get rid of that self-righteousness. And if you're going to have revival, 
you're going to have to let the Lord deal with them issues in your life. Because if you don't get rid of them issues, revival, if God did send it, it couldn't stay because them issues will smother it out. So I want to ask you tonight, if anything that I have said in this message has touched you in any way, while I've been preaching, if I've said anything in this message that has touched you and God has spoken to you through anything that I've said, and you realize that you need to get that thing before the Lord and lay it before the altar, I'm going to ask everybody to stand in just a moment whenever I do. If God has spoken to you and if God has touched you while I've been preaching, I want you to come forward. And I want you to lay that issue down tonight. Don't take it out of here with you. You've been carrying it too long. It's become too comfortable for you. You'll be surprised if you lay that thing down how much God will bless you for laying it at the cross. And you'll walk out of here a free person. Would you stand with me, please?